Welcome to the Hope CC Resources Podcast, where we revisit sermons, talks, and discussions from the archives of Hope Community Church in Minnesota. If you would like to find more resources from Hope Community Church, please visit hopeccresources.com or download the Hope CC app. Today's resource is a message by Pastor Steve Treichler called, What is Sin Anyway? A Biblical Theology of Sin. It was originally given on April 20th, 2008 as part of the series, Be Killing Sin or It Will Be Killing You. You can find all other messages from this series by visiting hopeccresources.com or by downloading the Hope CC app. Is anybody in the room 25? 25. Anybody? No, 25. Exactly 25. One, two, three, upstairs, four, five. All right, you were born in 1983 probably, or possibly 82, haven't had your birthday yet. Is that correct? Huh? Math teacher, uh-huh. Um, what's that? <laughs> uh, 25 years ago today, 25 years ago today was April 20th, 1983. Huh? No. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. 23. <laughs> All the... All the stuff, all the stuff I just impressed you with about my math, I just blew. April 20th, 1983, um, I heard a guy by the name of Jim Cunahan share his story and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It was in the evening of this day, 25 years ago, and uh, it caused me to think about Christianity and about being a follower of Christ like I had never done before. Went to bed that night, April 20th, 1983, and said, God... Someday, someday I'm going to make a commitment to you because something that that guy said blew me away. And he said, do you know that you can know for certain that when you die, you're going to heaven? I'd never, ever heard that before. At least never, it never rang in my brain. And he quoted from 1 John 5.11 and 12. 5.11, 12, and 13, which says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And I always thought you'd go through life, you just, you know, at best, whoo, hope you're going to do well, you know. And this verse said you could know. And, and that was the first time I had ever been confronted like that. I'm not going to go into all the details of what was going on in my life. I was going through a very fearful time being a freshman, which is fearful enough. But the nuclear war was at a, at, a, at, a, at a peak. I was thinking about death all the time, all the time. And uh, it was on the next morning, April 21st, 1983, that in the shower in House 10 of Frontier Hall, that I just, yes, there you go, I hear that, there you go. Uh, I'll pray for you. The, uh, that I made a commitment to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I put this up here because if God were doing a marketing campaign, and he were to need a sign saying Amazing Grace, and he were to need a poster child to show of grace, it would be me. I say that because anyone who knows me well enough knows that I don't finish anything that I start. I just don't. I love starting stuff, and I hate finishing it. I've got, literally, I've got three feet, ask my wife, I've got three feet of books by my bed, most of which I've started. I'm that kind of person. The fact that I'm standing here 25 years later is just a total work of God's grace and not 
Not anything about me. Please, don't hear that. I just, I'd want to give public declaration to praise to God. So that's my little birthday wishes to myself, I guess. <laughs> We're starting a new series today. I am thrilled about this series. I've been thinking about this series since we got the idea kicked off in our mind. It is called, Be Killing Sin or It Will Be Killing You. I want to warn you, this is going to be an intense series. It's because, I know that, because we're basing it on, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's this is the book we're getting it from. This, one, this book is called Overcoming Sin and Temptation, but it's actually three of John Owen's works compiled into here. And um, we're just doing the first one, which is only a hundred and, not even a hundred pages long, it's like 96 pages long. And it's going to take us, at least the map I have so far, it's going to take us 10 weeks to get through. Now, the, if, if you would like to follow along, we're kind of going through this chapter by chapter, through this book, or through the first chunk of this book. It's called The Mortification of Sin. Isn't that a great word? Mortification. Use that word this week. I'll give you a nickel. The mortification of sin means killing, the death, the death of sin in your own life. Uh, we're going to be going through this book. And you can, we have a few copies out there. We don't make any money. By the way, we've lost money over the years. Don't, if you think our book table's there, and I can't believe that church are into making money, we do not make money. I can show you the balance sheet every year. We, it was a pay-what-you-can-afford kind of table. If you can't afford it, book is free or whatever you can afford. We're asking 15. That's what we paid for them on Amazon. We are going to cover next week, not this week. This week's just an introduction. Next week, we're going to cover, we're going to cover um, chapter 1. Now, let me warn you on these chapters. They're only about between five and nine pages long. They'll take you an hour. Just because this dude writes dense. It's it's, it's tough sledding. Now, the beauty of it is, if you don't want to buy a book, and you're not into that, you just want to read it, you can get it free online. I just found it this morning. (laughs) JohnOwen.org. It's just like it sounds. J-O-H-N-O-W-E-N.org, O-R-G. And you can go there, you can just go, and right on that page is, you'll see a copy of this book, and it says, read online. That's a new feature, because it wasn't there just recently, so I'm thinking, thank you, Jesus, because we're going through the series. If you want to do that, and you want to read it, let me encourage you, though, this book, it, it has radically been in, impacting my life, our staff's life, our pastoral staff have been going through this book since early February, something like that, maybe late January, I don't know, something like that. And we have been thinking about this topic. What the idea is, is this. You don't have a choice. You're in a war. You don't have a choice about it. This isn't a democracy. You're in a war. The battle's with sin. And the question is, who's going to win? It's not a battle. You can give into it, but then it's won. And it'll kill you. It will kill you. Or you can decide, I'm going to do what it takes to go after it and try to kill it. And it doesn't like to be killed. So it's a war. We are declaring war in the next 10 weeks here at Hope Community on sin. Now, that is all introduction. Actually, all we're asking you to read, I've got it down here, page 45 to 49. That's five pages. But believe me, it'll probably take you a little while. It, it, it's tough. This is tough sledding. So... I'm going to put this over here because I don't need that anymore. Um, Now, when I say sin, you say, huh? 
Because sin, I mean, we think of sin and, and uh, uh, you know, the time that the, that book was written, and Cor will give you a little bit more of an introduction of what the, what the book's about next week when he goes through chapter one with you. But the, the, that was the 1600s. And believe it or not, people knew their Bibles way better than they know today. So when I say sin, you're thinking, I'm not, what, what is that? Not sure. There was a book written in 1973 by a famous psychologist called Whatever Became of Sin. Whatever Became of Sin. This is 1973. So that's 35 years ago. 35 years ago. And he, in this book, he, he says things, it just, it's radical. He says things like, you know what? After doing all the psychological studies and all this, we don't just have some problems that we've got an issue with each one. There's something fundamentally wrong with each one of us. It's a radical thing in 1973 to say. But before that, every previous generation said, and it's sin. But now it, it was like, huh? We got something wrong with us? He says this, the very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. It was at once a strong word, an ominous and serious word. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? <laughs> No. Doesn't anyone believe in sin? See, the whole concept of sin now has become, uh, if, if it hinders my life, then it's sin. That's just a, a fault I have. Or, hey, 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 nobody's perfect, right? Those are the ways we define sin. So you've got to ask yourself a pretty hard question before we even tackle this thing. This whole week, by the way, is nothing more then just if we're declaring war on sin, all we're doing this week is ask, answering the question, what are we even declaring war on? What is sin? In the 1600s, in the, in the middle of the 1600s, there was a group that were formed around the English Reformation. Man, it's very, and that's when this, this guy's an English Puritan, and that's a very, very interesting time. Oh my goodness, I got caught up yesterday in all the history of the English Reformation and the politics behind it, and it's just amazing because they hated different countries, and so that affected their theology, and, it, and groups were defined by their religion, which is still true in many parts of the world, and, and, and so it was amazing. But there was a thing called the English Reformation. It was highlighted by this group of hundred and some clerics that got together, ministers that got together, and said, what is it that we believe now? We're no longer Catholic. Who are we? And they wrote something called the Westminster Confession. To, it's a long document. To teach people that, they call the thing called the, the larger catechism or where it answer questions. Answer, ask a question, here's the answer. And if you're a kid, you had to memorize this stuff. And the, the question is, question 24, what is sin? What is sin? And the answer that they came up with in this Westminster Confession, which is in, if you've heard of Westminster Abbey, that's where this took place, that, that area. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. So it's just basically a, a something about I, God has got these decrees and I disobey them or I have a want of disobeying them. Now, I think that's fairly good. It's just many people still use this. Westminster Confession is still used by the Scottish Presbyterians and by the Presbyterian Church of America uh, as their foundational document with two differences. One, the Presbyterian Church of America uh, doesn't believe in church and state, and they took out that thing about the Pope being the Antichrist. But other than that, they keep the Westminster Confession 
There's a little politics involved in this stuff too. So, uh, so anyway, but that's a fairly decent definition. All I want to do for this morning, all I want to do for you is give you a biblical understanding of what sin is. And it's complicated. This is a tough enemy. And I want to give you this morning, we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation. This is one of those Sundays where we kind of get a picture. We call it a biblical theology. We're going to kind of hit all the way through, and we're going to pick up what is sin? How does it unfold biblically? What, what exactly is going on? So if you brought a lunch, you're in good shape. I know this is first service, but you're still in good shape. We will finish. We're going to go Genesis to Revelation. I promise to skip a couple chapters here and there throughout the whole Bible. So if you want to follow me, good luck. But you can grab your Bible, go way left, because we're going Genesis chapter 2 to start, and we're going to end up in the last chapter of the Bible. And if you didn't, you're getting your money's worth this morning. That's it. You're getting your money's worth. If you look at the outline in your, now don't freak. We are going to make it through this outline. It's all going to work. It's all, everybody's happy. This is, now, I know it's a major outline. There's seven major points and like four headings under each point. Those of you who are not trained professionals, do not attempt this at home. Only allow those who are really good at this, and I'm not saying that I am, either, um, what'd you say, either I'm a little bit stupid or or really good at it, and I think it's a little bit mixed. So we're going to try this. We're going to go through this. I want to give you, my goal today is to give you a biblical understanding, and at the end of this, I have a major challenge for you. Major challenge. And it's it's all today just kind of informational. So uh, next week we get convicting. This week it's just informational. So those of you who are looking to plan your Sundays, this week is informational. Next week, go over to Bethlehem or something like that. Now, let's start, let's start in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we won't go to 2. 2 is the, the creation story. Genesis chapter 3. How does sin enter the world? Sin enters the world because, I, I, I lied. I did want to go to Genesis chapter 2 just for a second. There's only one command. When, after the creation of Adam, there's only one command directly given to him. It's in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. I don't know the computations and possibilities and permutations of all the different moral choices Adam could make in the Garden of Eden, but there was only one that he wasn't supposed to do, and that was to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden tree of good and evil. Now I know whenever you say don't do something, you tell the little kid, whatever you do don't X. That's all they can think about. And that's probably what's going on. One and only command. What happens? They break the one and only command. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, they get in this deal where Satan we see in other scriptures where it talks clearly that Satan comes as this serpent and he deceives them. It says in verse 1 Satan, or the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he, he, he challenges them. Did God really say you may not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God say that? No, God didn't say that. God said you cannot eat from the tree of good and evil. You can eat from any other tree. So you see what he's doing here? He is tricksy. He's sneaky. Because he gets you going, wait a minute, now, what, what did he say? Oh, that's right. No, 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 no. And that's what he, he gets this conversation with Eve. And she replies back, no, you can eat from any tree, but he did say you must not eat the tree that's in the middle of the garden or you will surely die. And 
And Satan now, he goes from this kind of being tricksy to outright lying. He says, you won't die. You'll surely not die. Because for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Huh. That's new information for her. And then verse 6, and everything changes in the world after verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Remember that? He was there. Don't blame just Eve. He's just there, checked out, but he's there. And he ate some. Clear command. You can do anything you want. Just don't eat from this one. They come, they get deceived, admittedly, and they eat. Sin entered the world. It was not here before. Adam and Eve before that time knew exactly what it was like to live a sinless life, which I wish I could feel for just 30 seconds. If I could feel that, it would be awesome. Well, it just keeps getting worse. So just keep hanging on here. What happens then? That's chapter 3. Chapter 4, sin now is going to spread throughout the Old Testament. I want to take you through a kind of a buggy ride here of what's going to happen, how sin is going to spread. They have kids. They have Cain and they have Abel. And if you read from verse 3, it says, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from the sum of the firstborn of his flocks. The Lord looked on favor with Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. There's a lot of people wondering why. Some are saying because it took a sacrifice of an animal. Uh, that's why. And it's, we're, not, we're not exactly sure why, but it just says that's the case. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. So he's angry now. He's going to do something. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, and here it is, sin is crouching at your door. You get that a picture. Sin is hidden tiger, you know, right there, waiting at your door. It desires to have you. But you must master it. Dude, that's quite a picture. You know, we think of sin as just... We think of sin, and, and even from that definition that once Mr. Confession, I'm going to push on that definition. All morning I'm going to push on that definition. Sin is active. It's not just you breaking a rule. It's crouching at your door. It's there. Okay, it's, it's going to keep spreading. If you keep going through the book of Genesis, you get to Genesis chapter 15. There's whole kinds of people now. Bunches of people all over the place. There's a guy by the name of Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you all kinds of different uh, people and land, and you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. You're going to be the father of, of my special people. Abraham wonders about how that can be. God promises him this, and he gives him, and he makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And he says this, he says in verse 13, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they'll be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. That's a nice promise. You're going to promise me all those people, and now you're telling me that they're going to be brutally treated for 400 years. The effects of sin is going to happen even on these promised people. 
And afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, so one, two, three, four generations out, your descendants will come back here. But not until then. Why? For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So sin is spreading all over the place. But it's a cumulative effect, and it has, it has, it's kind of like tar. It keeps sticking to you, but there's more and more and more and more of it. And once it reaches a certain point, God says, enough. I'm going to take these people out. And he took the Amorites out. The sin had reached its full measure. Now, that brings us to my man here, who just passed away, by the way. Um, not Moses. Moses died a long time ago. But Charlton Heston. And... Up until that time, you could possibly argue, well, there's very few rules in the Bible. Until you come to the book of Exodus, there's a few, obviously. And, and some had even argued and said, listen, uh, the only rule that was ever given in Genesis was don't eat from the tree of the middle of the, of the garden. How about these other things? Well, Cain knew it was a sin to kill Abel. Sin is crouching at your door. It wasn't spoken yet. Now it's going to be written down. And so Moses goes up and he gets... The ten, suggestions, uh, ten Commandments. No, he gets, they're not suggestions. We think they are, but they're not. They're commandments. He comes down with these, and, and here they are. Here they are. There's ten of them. Uh, first one, I'm the Lord. Uh, excuse me, that's not the first one. First one is, uh, he says, I'm the Lord who brought you out. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number one rule. Now, I'm a believer that the number one rule is the number one rule. Because it's first. Write that down. It's the most important thing. You'll ignore the gods before me. And he says, don't make yourself an idol and all these different things. Go to the next one. Uh, He says, don't misuse my name. That doesn't mean when you just swear. It means that if you claim to be a follower of God and live a different life, you are taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's what it means. Uh, I didn't just give you permission to swear. That's not what I'm saying, but let's get this correct. Then he says, remember the Sabbath day? Go on. Go to the next one. Honor your mother and father. My children could get the tape so that you may live a life, a long life in the land. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie against your neighbor, especially in a court of law. Don't give false testimony. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Cover neighbor's wife, his manservant, maidservant, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. There you go. Now, comes down Two tablets, right? But many people don't know this. He got way more than this. This was just kind of a summary of everything. This is Exodus chapter 20. Moses does not come down off the mountain until Exodus chapter 32. So from Exodus chapter 20, 1, 2, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 31, all that are more and more and more rules, more and more and more laws. God is giving Moses. The first ten, though, are what they called the ten words or the ten commandments, the big ones. Kind of everything falls under here. But let me give you a lot of other instructions. Moses is up doing this. It took some time. This just didn't happen. You know, it it took over some time. The people of Israel, now they heard, if you're familiar with Exodus 19 and 20, they get ready. This is the Moses goes up the mountain, Moses goes down the mountain passage. Remember that? Up and down, up and down, up and down. And the people know, and, and the, the, the mountain shakes and all this, and they're freaked out. No, no, don't make the mountain speak. Moses, you go. We don't want to hear it. God's too much for us, too big. 
by the time they get to Exodus chapter 32, I don't know what the period of time there is. It's probably some days. It could be weeks. Listen to what happens. When the people saw that Moses was so long coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. Hello? This God, part of the Red Sea, you saw it. The flaming thing, the, the throw, throw the snake down thing, the, 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 the plague thing, all these things you saw. It. You just got done seeing the mountain and the, and the shake and the and oh, you can't go. Moses, you go, all that stuff. He's taking too long. Why don't we make a God? And you know the word part about it is Aaron does it. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up to Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered, take off all the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. I, I like Aaron. I really do. And it, I hope there was a gun at his head at this moment. It's not in the passage, but I hope somebody was saying, do it or we cack you. Anyway, uh, so all the people took off the earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him, made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf fashioned it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Now, the amazing thing is they watched it being made. It wasn't like I was just walking around and all of a sudden, there's a gold calf. No, they made it. You flip it upside down, it says made in China. You know it was a made thing. But they still, they worship at it. Uh, It's just unbelievable. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Aaron's a confusing guy. I admit it. He's just a little confused. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Revelry. House 10, Frontier Hall, Friday night. Mm, Revelry. So it's just, okay, build the calf, go over here, have a festival to God, party. Then the Lord said to Moses, he's up on the mountaintop getting all his laws. He says, go down. Because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone. It's God speaking now. So that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Moses pleads for the people of Israel and God relents and he doesn't do it. It's an amazing passage. What can we learn about sin here? Sin makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense that they did this. And you think of your own life? Stop trying to figure it out. Like you could logically work your way out of it. It's crouching at your door. We move on. Move from Exodus. They obviously get banished. Uh, uh, it's, it's all kinds of things happen. We won't go into all the different disobediences. Uh, but they get to Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy it's talked about. If you are going to follow me, there will be blessings. If you don't, there will be curses or the absence of my hand. When I remove my hand, things will not go well for you. 
So in, Gen- in Deuteronomy chapter 30, you see this. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart whenever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. By the way, that's a, that's, that's a curse because they're a nation, but when they were really, really wicked, God would say, enough, I'm letting other nations come in. Not only are they going to come in and rule you, they're going to take you out and spread you all over the known world. Disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land or to the heavens, from from there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more numer- prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. It's incredible grace in the Old People say the Old Testament is just full of anger and wrath and all that. No, it's not. Read carefully. It's the same God in the Old Testament New Testament. He's grace here. It's amazing grace. But you know, there's something about sin, though, too. How are you going to overcome it? God. God's got to change your heart. Because something's wrong with ours. He will, it says, circumcise your heart. Something's wrong with me. It's got to fix me. And it just keeps getting worse from there. If you go to the book of Judges, Judges is probably one of the most depressing books in all the Bible. Just depress- it's, just, it's this cycle where People sin, you can see it in, in chapter 2, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. And here's this cycle, you see it in the end of chapter 2. But when the judge, there's this ruler, they call the judge. When the, the ruler would come and, 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 and they would, they'd start to sin, they'd turn away from God. And then the judge would come, he would bring people around and, and they'd start to repent. And they'd come back and they'd come back to God. But that's the two-dimensional. Take it as a three-dimensional and put it like this. It kind of goes like this. It corkscrews in. It says, but when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up the evil practices and stubborn ways. And just kind of was cyclical, time after time after time. And the book ends, the last verse in the book says, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit, which is not good, not good. In the middle of that is the book of Ruth, which we took, which is a beautiful little book. Four chapters of pure, ha. Ah. Then we go right back to it. First and second, Samuel, first and second, King. It just, we go right back into things. Even the major hero of the Old Testament is an adulterer and a murderer. The major hero of the Old Testament. You, some would argue Abraham, I would argue David, is the major hero in the Old Testament. And he gets rebuked in a great way. He gets corrected. He, he, he has adultery and he murders someone and doesn't even think twice about it. There's a prophet by the name of Nathan. The Lord sent, this is in 2 Samuel 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, and he knew that he would never hear him if he just told him straight. So he tells him a little story. He says, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, it grew up with him and his children. It shared its food, drank from its cup, and even slept in its arms. It was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Be very careful how you administer justice when someone's giving you a parable. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then one of the most profound words in all the Old Testament, Nathan looks right into David's eyes and says, you are that man. The hero of the Old Testament. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Even our major hero is stained with sin. And and his relationship with God is renewed, but it's never quite the same. Sin has no uh, people that are not in their crosshairs. If you think, oh, I don't struggle with sin. Just wait. I hope I, hope, I hope I can get you there in a few minutes. So as a result of all this, the nation of Israel goes to the point where God finally does disperse them. And we see in two telltale passages how bad it has gotten. In Isaiah 59, God says this, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you. Hear that word? Separated you from, you, you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. What does sin do? Well, sin comes and it crouches me, it deceives me, it tries to have me, and when it has me, what does it do? It separates me from God so that he can't even hear me. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken lies and your tongues Your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And when one is broken, the adder is hatched, a a snake, a poisonous snake. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their path. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know peace. Sin is destructive. No one starts their life and says, I want to live like that, man. That's great. No, it's destructive. It takes you down a path. And it's tricking you. And it's deceiving you. And it wants your life. And it wants to ruin you. It's out to kill you. And then from Jeremiah. Now if you're in the Bahamas, I want you on verse 13. Because uh, uh, the rest of the Old Testament is really good. But Jeremiah 2.13 is huge. Therefore I'll bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over the coats of Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there is 
ever been anything like this? Has a nation ever changed its gods? As a whole nation, is there any, any other nation in the history of things? And they decided, you know what, we're going to be this now. He says, uh, even though they're not gods at all, this, uh, these pagan nations, they don't change. But my people have exchanged, big word there, their glory, they've exchanged me for worthless, worthless calves. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. Here it is. My people have committed two sins. Now, this is going a little bit against. Again, I don't mind the Westminster Confession definition. I think it's good. But if you think of sin only as breaking a rule, you're missing something. You're missing something big. My people have committed two sins. Number one, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, And number two, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now that's a new definition of sin. That's different. That's saying that sin actually is, I'm looking to fill myself up. I am a person who will worship. Everybody in this room is a religious person. You will worship something. What this passage is saying is, What's it going to be? What's your God? At this very moment, what's your God? If your God is not God at this very moment, it's sin. And I don't care what you put in the blank. Marriage, good job, going to the right church because I I couldn't, I have to be the best. Uh, I read my Bible every day because that scores points with God and that's what makes me okay, not God. Anything you could put in that blank. Now obviously you can put the things that seem more obvious. Adultery and drunkenness and stealing and lying and all these kind of things. It's much more complicated than that. When you lay your head down at night and you have not during that whole day thought about God once. And you say, I'm just going to think about my life and just see if there's anything I can confess. And not one thing comes to your mind. Think again. If God has not been your God during the day, I don't care what you're doing. It's tainted with sin. You're being deceived. You're being tracked away from God. And that's what sin wants to do. It's much more complicated than, I didn't lie today. Did I treasure God when I was with my child? Or did I just want him to obey because I want to do my own thing? Ah, sin. But we don't, uh, no no one calls that sin. That's just life. Okay, life is sin then. Whatever. It's complicated. It's sticky. It's deceptive. It's tricksy. Now, going to the New Testament. New Testament. What does Jesus say about this? The good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. When the first time John the Baptist saw Jesus, in John chapter 1, he says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I, I have made kind of a, a commitment with God that I, every week, Say this, even though this week is filled with some of the worst news you're ever going to hear. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to take away your sin. Not just the sins you even know about. All your sin. All of it. So you're thinking. Now this is what you should be thinking. If you're not thinking this, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) 
Or maybe there's something wrong with me. Uh, all right, wait a minute now, wait a minute now, wait a minute. Okay, if, if Jesus came to take away my sin, and he died for it all on the cross, and took all of it, the penalty of it all, then what's the big deal? Why, why should I even care? Because it's all paid for. So it's kind of like going in, like if somebody says, you know what, you can eat the rest of your life at McDonald's, it's always paid for. Oh, sweet. You know, just every day. Double cheeseburger. I wouldn't eat double cheeseburgers, dude. I would eat, uh, what's expensive, right? Martin Luther, when, when he says, if you, if you understand the gospel, Martin Luther says, that you will be tempted to, anybody know what he says? Sin and sin how? Boldly. But that's often taken out of context because Luther was not telling anyone to sin boldly. He's saying if you truly understand how deep the richness of the cross is, you'll sin boldly. So you'd think Jesus would say, listen, don't worry about it anymore. It's no big deal. I got it covered. Go to Mickey D's. I'm equating Mickey D's with sin. I'm sorry about that, those of you who are. But um, <laughs> good analogy. It works. Huh? <laughs> Um, you think it'd be no big deal. Listen to what Jesus says about sin. Matthew chapter 5. He says, you've heard that it was said, do not, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. If you're right, I causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. Whoa! I thought you took care of it. Yeah, if you're right, I causes you to sin, gouge it out. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Whoa, wow, that's tough. How do those two fit? It's your job. Figure it out. Verse 5. Or excuse me, uh, point 0.5. Point 0.5 is 7. We are smoking. 5. Paul's theology of sin. I'm a Paul freak. I admit it. I'm going to give this to you in seven parts. There's more, but I cut it down to seven. <laughs> the, I want to give you, Paul talks about sin in a remarkable way, in a way that I think no one else in the whole Bible really talks. He kind of expands on some of the themes in there. and He, he lifts on that Isaiah 59 and Jeremiah 2. He talks about it in Romans 1. He, he nails it pretty heavy here. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What, sin has a consequence. One of the consequences is separation from God. But it's not just separation. That'd be bad enough. It's also active wrath, active anger of God. Wow. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His divine nature, excuse me, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither two things glorified Him nor gave Him thanks. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And, here, and they exchanged, there's that word again, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God says, if you want to do that, go ahead. I'm going to give you over to it. I'm not going to stop you. He gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. I'm just going to stop right there on that one. What's Paul say sin is? Paul says sin is ultimately, moment by moment, 10,000 times a day, 
when I take something and I should give glory and thanks to God and instead I exchange the glory do God and I exchange it and worship and serve created things to fill me up thousands of times a day. This is not just every now and then. I'm grateful to God that as I ask him, God, at the end of the night, what is it you want me to confess before you? He lays one, two, three, four things down. I'm so grateful for that. But no, this is a moment-by-moment battle. Second thing, what does this happen? Verse uh, Chapter 3 of, of Romans, he says, For all have sinned, and therefore everyone has this problem. Everyone has exchanged the glory of God. Second thing, what does this mean? You fall short of the glory of God. You fall short. Sin, one of the definitions of sin is to miss the mark. You've fallen short. Where does this go? Chapter 5 of Romans. And this is, gets even more difficult to, ha- to handle. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many die by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like that's Christ. It's not like it, well it is exactly like it, but in the opposite direction. It's not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. What, what's that mean? It's really bad news. It's saying this. Even if you never in your personal life ever choose to exchange the glory of God and worship and serve created things rather than the created, even if you had never done that, and no one in this room has ever done that, has ever, has ever not done that. But even if you had, you'd still be guilty because of Adam. Adam's sin. Adam was our representative. And he sinned. And when he sinned, everybody's guilty. And you're thinking, that's a ripoff. I didn't do anything. If that's true, then you can't say Jesus and him dying in your place is not a ripoff. The two kind of go hand in hand. So the bad news is all inclusive, but the good news is all inclusive. So if you're with me, I'll take the good news because I'm in trouble because I did choose to sin. But even if I hadn't, I would have been in trouble. Four of Paul. What shall we say then? He's speaking to people who have come to a point in their life where they've trusted Jesus Christ to take care of the penalty of their sin. What shall we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No way. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And he goes on in this chapter to say, you've been freed from the power of sin. Not just the penalty, but the power of sin. Whoa. He says, at the end of that same chapter, and I'm going to let you, this is going to be the challenge today. I'll tell you that in a little while. The challenge is this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the aspects of that, one of the byproducts of that is that you will, will go after and kill sin. If you decide that I don't want to kill sin, it calls into question whether or not you ever were a follower of Jesus. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Don't quote that verse out of context. The context is talking to believers, people who claim to be a follower of Jesus. And if sin is no big deal to you, and ah, whatever, you know, Jesus paid for it on the cross, which he did. It's a true statement. But if there's no gouging and no hacking of your arm in your life, the passage says the wages of sin is death. And it's not talking physical death here, folks. 
It's, it's intense. This is a battle for your life. Part six. Even though it's defeated, it's not going down easy. For Paul says, for what I for what I want to, for excuse me, for what I do is not the good I want to do. The evil I do not want to do, this evil I keep undoing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law working on the members of my body, waging war against the law, the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. I love that passage because that defines my experience and probably yours too. You're thinking, oh, you know what? I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to try to really walk with God every moment. And you find out there's this stuff that's plaguing me. It's just, it's, what is the deal? It's still alive. I, when we get in, in mortification of sin here, there's a point where he says, you get to the point where you, you think you kill the sin and it really is out and it's to the, but you got to wake up every morning and whack it one more time. You wake up the next morning, you whack that sucker again. Because it just keeps getting up and looking at you. And you just, wham, let it have it. You've got to kill sin or it'll be killing you. Paul says then, for the Christian, because we have this power of God within us, and because God is faithful, there's never an excuse for sin. Our circumstances explain our sin. Never excuse it. Never. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Because sin ultimately is idolatry. Now, very quickly, what do other writers in the New Testament say? The book of Hebrews chapter 3 says that This sin thing still in the world for the believer is the dangerous journey. It can take you out. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that no one, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I need you guys in my life. You need one another. That's why we have small groups. Because sin is tricky, and I need you to help me. We've come to share in Christ, if we hold firmly to the end, the confidence we had at first. That's a weird phrase. We have come to Christ, if something in the future happens, we hold firmly to the end. Well, that's interesting. And yet, I get here, like I said when I started this message, I get here because... Of the grace of God. I'm not going to say, ooh, I made it 25 years. No, I'm a wimp. God is faithful. My job is just to keep hanging on. But God is faithful. With that said, it's also true. This is coming to your job. Your job's coming up a little bit. This is going to be tough, but you're going to do it. First John 1 says that everyone will wrestle with sin. If you claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is no place in our lives. That's from John in the, we're getting towards the end now, towards 1 John. And he says, if you claim to be without sin, that's not true either. You have to confess your sin. Two quick definitions from James. 
Oh, wait, excuse me. There's a sin cycle thing here from James. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, no one, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he, by his own evil desire, is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full, bro, full grown, gives birth to death. Two quick definitions. One from James and then one back from 1 John. James says, anyone then, simple definition of sin. It's not complete, but it's a simple one. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Simple. 1 John says it this way, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. That's more in line with the Westminster Confession. It's more than that, but it's certainly not less than that. Now, here's where it gets complicated. Remember, this is from 1 John. Same book I read a little bit about, every one of us struggles with sin. Listen to this, he says, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who's continued to sin has either seen him or known him. Okay, how can that? That's true. And yet this, if you claim to be without sin, you just, you're a liar. Okay, help me out here. One says that I, sh- I, sh- I have to declare that I'm still struggling with sin. The other one says, if you keep on sinning, you're not a follower of Christ. Like, wait a minute now. And what I think this is saying, and saying in other passages in the New Testament too, if you give just an ardent, if you just give up, I'm not going to fight anymore. I'm done fighting. This should be easy. I, I'm just, I'm not at war with sin. I gave up a long time ago. I just give into it. Of course you don't feel any. It's no big deal. He says if that's true, you've got to question whether or not you ever were or are a follower of Jesus. That's what I think this passage, how these two fit together. Now, we get now to the death of sin. The Bible ends by giving you the death of sin in the book of Revelation talks about who, who is writing, and he says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, Tim who loves us and has freed us from the sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve as God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Jesus Christ is the answer. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come, but Jesus Christ is the answer to the sin problem in every dimension, penalty, power, shame, everything resulting sin, it is Jesus who's going to be the answer. And there's coming a day when we will not, we will be just like we were back in the garden. Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That day is coming. And when you taste that, you're going to say, what was I thinking on the other side? And then he makes it very clear, the last chapter of the Bible. Then the angel showed me the river of of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Now, there you go. You just got a buggy ride from Genesis to Revelation on the doctrine of sin. It is your arch enemy. It wants to kill you. I've got a challenge for you. I was going to close this up with a nice paragraph from all of that stuff, all of that stuff on what's sin really? 
What's sin? How do you, uh, uh, what, this whole tricky thing. Here's the challenge. I would like you guys to do that. This PowerPoint will be online. You want to go back through? You got your notes there and you're in there? If you really want to battle sin, you got to know what you're up against. You can relook at these passages. Like I said, PowerPoint will be online uh, later today or maybe tomorrow morning. On my blog, I'm going to post a thing and it's just going to say, Sin is. SteveTreichler.blogspot.com. Sin is. And I would challenge you, as many as want to, to take some time the next day or two to ponder everything we've talked about and write down, this is what sin is. This is what it is to me. Not, not, I'm, I'm not saying your personal sins, the things you're struggling with. I'm saying, the over, what is this enemy we're all against? Because if we're declaring war on something, you better know what it is. And what you've been laid through, I know it was a lot of passages. I, I thank you for your hanging in there. If you get a grip of what it is, you will have a much better chance at defeating it. Let's pray together. <clears throat> God, I pray for as much as um, I am grateful to you on this day that uh, 25 years ago you had one of your servants share with a group who I happen to be sitting in uh, the beautiful message of who Christ is. And I'm as grateful today as I was then for that. I pray for some in this room, maybe the first time in their lives, they realized, oh my goodness, this problem is way bigger than me. I need a Savior. And I pray that April 20th, 2008 may be their first day of walking with you. I pray they'd bend their knee to you. And just like I did in the shower, said simple phrase, take me, Lord, I'm yours. Willing to follow you as Lord and take you as Savior. But God, just as much as we love you, God, I pray by your power and by word and by your word, Lord God, that you would give us an utter hatred for sin. God, I, I, I pray for those sins in our lives that we're just flirting around with and we think it's no big deal. God, would you just have us hate them because they hate us and they are trying to destroy us and we will never kill them until we identify them. Holy Spirit, I pray in this room as people are, are, are pondering and thinking that you would bring to mind the very things, the very, the very acts, the very works of treason that are, that are being sown into their minds because they're followers of you and we have an enemy and it's sin. And it's crouching. It's crouching right now. And I pray, oh God, that none of us would say, ah, no big deal. We get a big stick and whack it. Jesus, help us to do that. We can only do that by your power. It's not like we're going to be self-help city here. We need you. So God, show us what it is and then give us the power to kill it and give us the power to live rightly. It's all because of you, not because of us. But God, you got to come because we enter into this series for the next 10 weeks Lord God, we're going to go into all kinds of areas. And if you don't come in power, and if you don't come and relieve us, relieve us of these things, this is going to be at best an academic exercise, and perhaps at worst just a, a feeling of futility people will have. So God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit in power on us, and that 10 weeks from now, we would be people who want to first and foremost worship you, and second, 
We want to kill our sin. And thirdly, we want to go and do as much damage in this world as we possibly can. Lord God, we want to do that for you. Not so we can earn your favor, but because of the finished work of the cross. So Jesus, just do your work, we pray. In your precious name, amen.